Let's go now to Matthew chapter number three. Matthew chapter number three. We will read all 17 verses of Matthew chapter number three. We're continuing in our series that's titled The King of Heaven as we go through the gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 3, beginning with verse number 1, going through verse number 17. If you would like, you are free to stand with us in reverence to God's holy word. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, therefore that, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came to Galilee, to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were open to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we have said week after week, Matthew's one goal, Matthew's 
aim in writing this book to a predominantly Jewish audience is to present Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah King. Jesus is king. And then because Jesus is king, Matthew will record for us the words of Christ of how to respond to this king and how to be faithful citizens of this kingdom and what we should do as citizens of the kingdom of God. And so once again, Matthew uses his normal strategies of showing his Jewish audience of how Jesus is the, the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. Jesus is the, 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 the long-awaited Messiah and King. And so here in John chapter 3, finally we see Jesus arriving on the scene. But before Jesus can come to the scene, there's first someone else that Matthew wants to introduce us to. And so now as we get into Matthew chapter 3, I want us, this, this sermon is structured by two voices here in Matthew chapter 3. There's a voice at the beginning, and then there's a voice at the end. Let's look at what these voices now have to say to us. The first voice, in this first voice, we receive the announcement of the coming king. The announcement of the coming king. And the first thing we see in this announcement is a call to repentance. A call to repentance. Our text opens with the introduction of a new character by the name of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a cousin of Jesus, about six months older than Jesus Christ. And he's called the baptizer because he himself baptized people, which is unique for this time because there was a baptism that was done by Jewish people, but they would baptize themselves for the daily cleansing of sin. But not only is he a baptizer, but more importantly, he is a prophet. And beloved, this is significant. We must remember that John the Baptist comes on the scene after 400 years of silence from God. God has given his people the silent treatment for 400 years because of their unfaithfulness to the covenant. And so if God had gone silent for 400 years, the question on the minds of the people of God would be, has God forgotten about us? Will God keep his promises? And in John the Baptist, we receive the answers to those questions. John the Baptist is evidence that God has spoken. There is, again, a word from the Lord. What then does God have to say after 400 years of silence? Here it is, verse 2. God's message to his people and to us 
through John the Baptist is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the sermon in a sentence. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we see here a clear call to repent. That's the focus of the first 12 verses of chapter 3. What then does it mean to repent? That word will be used three times in our text. So it's important for us to have a clear understanding of the meaning of repentance. To repent means to change one's mind. To change one's mind. And then that change of mind leads to a turnaround. That change of mind leads to one turning back. It's specifically for the people of God to repent is a call to return to God. We must remember that God's people were constantly turning away from God by way of idolatry and unfaithfulness to the covenant between them and God. So this call to repent was a call to turn to God by way of loyalty and faithfulness. That is John the Baptist's message to his congregation and to us. Turn back to God. But why is John the Baptist declaring repent? He says because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance was necessary because the king and the kingdom of heaven were arriving. What is meant by the kingdom of heaven? This is a crucial phrase to understand, friends, as it is used 32 times in the Gospel of Matthew. The kingdom of heaven refers to the saving rule of God. When you think kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, which terms are both synonymous, by the way, think rule. It's the rule of God. And this king, this king, you must remember that Israel was waiting on a Messiah king to bring the rule of God to earth. This king had been promised throughout Old Testament scripture. So there was this expectation of Jewish people that a king would come to deliver them. So John announces what you've been waiting on is here. The king and the kingdom is here. And so because the kingdom of heaven has arrived, repent. They were to give their allegiance to this kingdom and obey the laws of this kingdom. Now beginning in verse 3, Matthew tells us why John the Baptist specifically came preaching this message. John the Baptist is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 40, verse number 3, which is recorded here in Matthew 3. We see Matthew chapter 3, verse number 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That voice was the voice of a herald. Let me give you some cultural context. A herald would run away. A herald is an announcer. That herald would run ahead of the king and announce that the king was coming. Hear ye, hear ye, the king is coming. Therefore, those 
or who, who were living in the area where the kingdom was needed to prepare for his coming by preparing the way by making his path straight. The path had to make, be made straight because the ground where the king would travel would be unleveled. Valleys were then to be lifted up and mountains were to be made low. In other words, all obstructions and barriers were to be removed. They were to create the king's highway. And so John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the voice that makes that announcement in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. He is the forerunner of King Jesus. And the way John's hearers were to prepare and make straight those paths for the king was by repenting. Now why does Matthew, though, if we keep reading ahead, we see in verse 4, he tells us, about John the Baptist's wardrobe and diet. It seems like it comes from out of nowhere. Matthew is doing something here. He is showing, remember, his primarily predominant Jewish audience that John is a true wilderness prophet. Only someone in the wilderness would have this kind of diet but more than that, he's demonstrating that John the Baptist is a true prophet as he comes in the spirit of Elijah. 2 Kings chapter 1, verse number 8. They answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. Matthew is also letting his readers know that John the Baptist is also the fulfillment of the one prophesied in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Here's what it says. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so what Matthew is doing here is he is showing that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the prophesied Elijah that would come before that great and awesome day. So John the Baptist is a true wilderness prophet in the spirit of Elijah. John the Baptist is the last prophet of the old covenant. So now that Elijah, John the Baptist, has come, now the king can come. And so then in the rest of this first section of this call to repentance, we see the result of John's preaching. Verse 5 says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sin." Their confession and their baptism was evidence of their repentant hearts. And this is the preferred response of Matthew from his readers. But it's also the response demanded of everyone who hears the good news of the kingdom. We must repent. We must change our minds and turn back to God. 
let me be clear about this call to repent. This call to repent is not a one-time response. We are to have a lifestyle of repentance. Martin Luther, in the first of his 95 theses that were nailed to the Wittenberg door, says, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ will the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And as we get ready to go into this new year, beloved, many of us are going to make New Year's resolutions. We want to lose weight, be more positive, work out more, all these different resolutions, be sweeter, be kinder, whatever you want to come up. I think at the top of our list of resolutions should be right here from Matthew chapter 3, repent. It should be resolved that we repent constantly. There is a repentance that leads to salvation that should be followed by baptism. But then after we are saved, we must continually repent of our sins for forgiveness of sins so that we might remain in right fellowship with God. What, what a time, what an encouraging word. We don't hear preaching like this today from many pulpits those calling for the saints to repent, to confess their sins, to have a changed lifestyle. And I'm so encouraged by this passage this morning because that message still works. John the Baptist shows if you are faithful and you preach the word, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God will bless that faithfulness. So I don't have to sell out. I preach by tickling ears of men. So in this announcement, we see the call to repentance, but we also see a confrontation with the religious, a confrontation with the religious. We see that in verses 7 through 10. The the, the text automatically takes a confrontational tone. We are introduced to the Pharisees and Sadducees. These were Jewish religious leaders. The Pharisees were those who taught strict adherence to the law of Moses. The Sadducees were spiritual elitists who desired to maintain the priestly caste. They they controlled the Sanhedrin, which was the governing body of the Jews. And we're going to see throughout the book of Matthew that the primary antagonists, the the opposition to Jesus Christ, are these Pharisees and Sadducees, religious folks. And so the text tells us that they come to be baptized by John, but John confronts them immediately. Look at verse 7. He calls them out. He says, you brood of vipers. that, that, That means you offspring of snakes. You are. He was, he's letting them know, I see your deceit. John asked them, who, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He says, they are snakes because they want everyone to think they are repentful, but really they are not. So in verse 8, he gives them this challenge. He confronts them. He says, if you are really repentant, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I I love Matthew 3, verse 8, because that helps us to understand what repentance really is. Repentance, beloved, is not just feeling sorry for your sin. 
Repentance is not just walking and coming to the altar. It's not just walking down the aisle. John helps us to see that repentance, there should be evidence of repentance through a changed life. Our actions and our behaviors should give evidence of genuine repentance. And unfortunately, these Pharisees and Sadducees had no evidence that they were committed to this coming king. So John both reveals and renounces the confidence of their faith. He says, and don't think, you can't just say to yourselves, but we've got Abraham as our father. Remember, if we go back to Matthew chapter number one, Jesus is called the son of David, but he's also called the son of Abraham. Why is that significant? Because of the Abrahamic covenant. First uh, uh, spoken in Genesis chapter 12, where God promises to Abram, he says, I want you to go to a country that I will show you, and I'm going to give you land, people, and seed, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And so, through Abraham now, the the Jewish people will be will come into existence and the offspring of Abraham will have this promised covenant that God would be with them and that they would be his, his God. And so and, and so that I'm sorry that God would be with them and that to them they would be his people. And so they thought that because of their ethnic identity they were in the kingdom. But John reveals that ethnic identity is insufficient to being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. John says, listen, God can take these stones, these rocks, and make them children of Abraham. But just because he turns them into children of Abraham don't mean that they're in the kingdom. Because being in the kingdom requires repentance, a turning to God and loyalty and commitment and faithfulness. So for, for, for them, they had to turn from their faith. Notice, they had faith. It was just not in the right object. They had to turn from their faith in their ethnic identity and legalistic following of the law of Moses and turn to God by faith in the gospel. The good news that King Jesus has arrived. He's here to save his people from their sins. Beloved, let, let, let me be clear that that message is still appropriate today. There's only one way into the kingdom. It's not through your parents. It's not through growing up in a Christian household. It's not through good deeds. It's not through spiritual disciplines. But it is only by faith alone and Christ alone. And our evidence, our faith gives evidence of a repentant heart. And then beyond initial saving faith, there should be fruit that gives evidence of ongoing repentance. And beloved, if there is no fruit of repentance, then we deceive ourselves. And this announcement of the king, not only is there a call to repentance and a confrontation with the religious, but finally we see the consequences revealed, verses 11 through 12. There are consequences of repentance and unrepentance. John announces 
He says that there is one coming. He says, I'm going to baptize you with water, but there is one coming who is greater and more powerful than me. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. Now, before I move forward, let me give my understanding of what is meant here by a baptism of Holy Spirit and fire. There are some who say that, this, that there's one baptism, which is a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then this baptism of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will then come like fire and refine us, get rid of all the impurities in our lives. But I just don't think that is faithful to the context of our passage. So, on multiple occasions here in Matthew chapter 3, there's this speaking of fire. And fire, in this passage, and really in the rest of Matthew, deals with judgment and wrath. So based on the context, I believe when John says that the one coming after me who's more powerful than me will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire, I think those are two different baptisms. One is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. For true believers, there will be a baptism of the Holy Spirit where God will save us, preserve us, and gather us into his eternal kingdom. But then there's another baptism of fire, and that's a baptism of judgment. Even here at the end, it says, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. They will be immersed in God's fiery judgment. So this one coming with Holy Spirit and fire, what John is showing us is that this is serious business, repentance. John reveals to us that our eternal destiny is tied to our acceptance or rejection of Christ. And then that is what we see in the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 3. In the first uh, uh, seven verses, we see, uh, or in the first 10 verses, we see those who accept. The first seven verses, we see those who accept. This good news. They accept this king. And their eternal destiny is they will be with Christ. But to those who reject Christ, who don't repent and don't bear fruit in keeping with repentance, their eternal destiny is that of judgment. And beloved, everyone has an eternal destiny. Either we will be with Christ eternally or we'll be, we will be in hell eternally. And so the question for someone on this stream this morning is, have you accepted Jesus? As, as Lord and Savior. All have sinned or theref and in, therefore are in need of forgiveness for their sins. And God has provided the way of forgiveness. And that's by faith in King Jesus alone. So that's the first voice, the announcement of the king. But then there's a second voice. And in the second voice, we receive the announcement of the chosen servant, the announcement of the chosen servant. Look with me, first of all, in verses 13 through 15, of the arrival of this king, the arrival of the king, the arrival of the chosen servant. 
Jesus is now an adult, and he comes to be baptized by John the Baptist. But when John sees Jesus coming, he tries to keep Jesus from being baptized. John the Baptist knows that, that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God, and since he's God, he's sinless. And since he's sinless, there's no need to repent. And since he, there's no need to repent, there's no need to be baptized. So why then would Jesus come to be baptized? Jesus responds to John's objection in verse number 15, saying, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Sounds good, but we don't know what that means. Some say that this idea of fulfilling all righteousness is Jesus identifying with those he came to save. Identifying with those he came to save. Jesus is the true Israel. And, and, and we actually saw that last week. I didn't show it to you, but Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the one who is on the run from a tyrant, like Israel was on the run from Pharaoh. Jesus is the one who has to seek refuge. So Jesus being this true Israel, Jesus goes down into Egypt like Israel went into Egypt. So now with Jesus being this true Israel, and he came to save his people from their sins. In order for him to save them, he needed to identify with them. If he was going to be their representative, he needed to identify with them. And Jesus identifies with them by being baptized. That's one view. There actually are very many views. But for the sake of time, I'm going to give you my best understanding of what is meant by Jesus when he says to fulfill all righteousness. Now, here's what we have to understand. This term righteousness has many shades of meaning. So the context determines how it's been used. In Matthew, generally, Matthew, when he uses this term righteousness, he refers, he's referring to doing the will of God. In Matthew, generally speaking, righteousness refers to doing the will of God. Now, don't try to apply that term to Paul in the letters. He uses it differently. But in Matthew, it was referring to doing the will of God. That's why other translations say something like this. They say, Jesus says to John, it should be done because we must do all that God requires. It was God's will and expectation and requirement for Jesus to be baptized. Okay. But then what, why would Jesus require, uh, uh, why would God require Jesus to be baptized? Let's look at these last two verses in verses 16 and 17 to help us answer that question. We see the arrival of the king, but then in verse 16, we're going to see the anointing of the king. Verse 16 tells us that after Jesus was baptized, the spirit of God descended like a dove and settled on him. The God, Jesus here, receiving the Holy Spirit is his anointing. We must remember Matthew's strategy in his book, in his gospel, is to prove that Jesus is king. And he shows that Jesus is king 
based on how the events and circumstances surrounding his conception, birth, life, and death are fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. And so in the Old Testament, we have to remember that when kings were coronated, they were anointed with oil. That word anointing means to rub, to smear. For instance, in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1, old King Saul, he's anointed as king by Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 12 through 13, God tells Samuel, I want you now to anoint David. And so Samuel pours the oil of anointing on David. And after David is anointed, here's what the text says. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So then, in the New Testament, what's the anointing? The Holy Spirit. So, when this Holy Spirit comes on Jesus at the baptism, he is being anointed as the king. This is heaven inaugurating the reign of Christ. The kingdom of heaven is here. But Jesus is also anointed by the spirit, not only to, 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 to coronate him as king, but it's also for the sake of his life and ministry on the earth. The spirit will empower him and guide him while he's here on the earth. Even next week when we get to Matthew chapter 4, we're going to see that it's the spirit that leads Jesus into the wilderness. We're going to see throughout Matthew that it is by the spirit that Jesus performed miracles so much that if somebody says that a miracle that's done by the Holy Spirit is actually done by the devil, that's called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The one unforgivable sin. So the anointing of the Spirit is for the coronation of Jesus as king, but also to empower him to do God's will on the earth. Let's look finally at his approval in verse 17. And I'm going to show you here in a moment, again, why God required Jesus to be baptized. So in, in verse 17, we finally get to that voice, a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This voice is not in the wilderness. It comes from heaven. The voice says in verse 17, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Watch this, beloved. The obedience of Christ won him the applause of heaven. God the Father was pleased with his son's righteous obedience. And what a timely word for those who seek the applause of men. This is a word for all the people pleasers in our congregation. Look, look, look. God approves of righteousness. God is pleased with obedience. So rather than seeking to please man, to, seek, to please people, we ought to seek to please God. 
We leave the results up to God. And when God is pleased, there are benefits to us. In a few weeks, we'll look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, which says, and seek first the kingdom of God and, and his righteousness. And what will happen? All these things will be added unto you, food, clothing, whatever it is that you have anxiety about. So we ought to do God's will, and he'll take care of us. But there's something deeper happening with the approval of the Son. And to understand what's happening, we actually have to go back to the Old Testament. This is what Matthew is doing. Matthew is showing his Jewish audience the Jewish scriptures and how Jesus fulfills those Jewish scriptures. So we got to look at Isaiah chapter 42. I want you to see this. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. And I think we're going to get our answer now as to why God required Jesus to be baptized. How the baptism of Jesus was the fulfillment of all righteousness. Here it is. Isaiah chapter, 2, 40, Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Here's how it reads. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nation. And so I'm convinced that what God does when he speaks from heaven through his approval, he is showing that Jesus is that servant that was prophesied in Isaiah chapter number 42. Jesus is God's chosen servant in whom his soul delights or in whom he is well pleased. And then we see God putting his spirit upon his chosen servant. Here in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus, that chosen servant, receives the Spirit. And so what we see then is God letting the world know that Jesus is the chosen servant. Jesus is the suffering servant that's revealed in the book of Isaiah. Jesus is God's son who is his chosen servant that will serve him in the world by dying on the cross for the sin of the world. Jesus himself said, I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. God, in this approval, says that Jesus is the servant in whom he delights and whose, and whose service he approves of. God, in this approval, is letting the world know that I'm going to accept the sacrifice of this chosen servant. Oh, hallelujah. That sacrifice, Jesus dying on the cross, not for his sin, but for our sin. He that knew no sin became sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. Jesus, God's chosen servant who suffered on the cross and on the way to the cross, he suffered, and God says, I approve of him, I receive his sacrifice, and, 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 I, and, and this sacrifice is sufficient to pardon the sin of sinners. Oh, beloved, this is good news. Because I, I, I must admit to you that I, I know that God is not always pleased with me. 
God can't be pleased with me because I am even aware of how sinful I am. And I know God is not always pleased. But hallelujah to the Lamb. It's not about how pleasing I am. It's about how pleasing Christ is. So even those days where I know I haven't pleased God, the confidence and assurance and comfort that I get is that I am in Christ who always is pleasing to the Father. So then why was Jesus baptized? I'm convinced because it was the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 42. After this baptism, God's spirit is put on him, and God announces that he is the one in whom his soul delights. So then how should we then respond to this word? I think the clear calling of this text, beloved, as I said earlier, is to repent. We got to change our way of thinking about God, about God's ways, about God's will. We've got to turn from living life our way and, to, and lean into our own understanding and turn to God and doing his way and doing his will. Not just some of the time, but all the time. And let's be honest, we won't do it perfectly, and God doesn't look for perfection. He, got, he has that in Jesus Christ, but he is looking for progress. So that's the call. Repent. Turn to God. Be faithful to God. Be loyal to God. Pledge your allegiance to God and his kingdom above all. That's the clear call of this text. Repent. Because the kingdom of heaven has come, is here, and it's coming in its fullness one day when Jesus returns. So repent. What does repentance look like? It's, John says you ought to have some evidence. There ought to be, we ought, people ought to be able to see, you ought to be able to see in your own life evidence that you've turned from sin and turned to righteousness. And we can't do it on our own. We need the Holy Spirit to do that. And that's what we receive. We receive the Holy Spirit when we put all of our faith and trust in God. That Holy Spirit comes to us immediately. And he empowers us to live a life pleasing to God. And so somebody here needs to repent the Bible says that there is a repentance that leads to salvation. Somebody here today, you need to turn to God through Jesus Christ by renouncing your old way of life, by renouncing whatever it is you are trusting in to make you right with God and turn to Jesus Christ, the great servant, that chosen servant of God who suffered by dying for your sin, for your wrongs, for your crimes against this kingdom. That same Jesus died and was buried for your sin. But that same Jesus rose from the grave on the third day with all power in his hands. So somebody needs to repent by turning to God, by putting your trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. But for those of us who are saved and we know we're saved, we need to daily and regularly repent, confess our sins, 
renounce those sins. But then I think this text also says that one of the ways we show evidence of our repentance is by way of baptism. A few weeks, at some point, we're going to baptize a couple of people because they have repented unto salvation. And what should be the first act of obedience after our salvation is baptism. When we are baptized, we don't, we're not baptized in order to be saved. We're baptized because we're already saved. And when we're baptized, one, we're baptized for obedience. The church is called to make disciples of all nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so you're baptized because you're already saved. And when you're baptized, that's you going public. That's you telling the world, telling the church that you're on God's team now. That you acknowledge your sins. You confess that you are a sinner and unworthy of God's love and, repent and, and forgiveness. And so when you go through the waters of baptism, you are saying with Christ, the old man died. With Christ, that old man is buried. Oh, but grace be to God, I come up a new person. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, all things, old things have passed away. So that's why you ought to be baptized. You ought not be saved and not be baptized. And so if you need to be baptized, then we encourage you to let us know. You can go on our website right now and, and, and fill out a bridge card and let us know, I need to be baptized. Now, let me make, make something very clear, and I'm almost done. You, you only need to be baptized once. Every time you, you don't need to be baptized every time you repent. No. You're baptized once. So we don't, we don't really do rebaptisms here. You're either baptized and that's it, or you're not. So if you've never been baptized, or if you've trusted in Jesus Christ today, then you should be baptized by going public to let the church know that you're on God's team now. And finally, I think we just need to obey the king. We need to obey the king. Jesus obeyed his father, and it pleased the father. Obedience pleases God. And that's what every child ought to want to their father, is to please them. And we do that through the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ alone. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for the word that you have given us here in Matthew chapter 3. Father, now we pray that we would not just be hearers of your words, but doers as well. Give us a heart of repentance, a spirit of repentance. Show us clearly our sins, those known and unknown. Let us be sensitive to the convicting of the Holy Spirit. And let us respond not with just guilt, but with a changed mind, a changed heart that leads to a changed life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.